Hi, this is Pastor Mike from Compass in Monterey County. Thank you for tuning in to my podcast. I hope it encourages you and gives you confidence that Jesus is by your side and that his plans for you are to bless you. Someone in America attempts suicide every minute of the day. And someone succeeds every 17 minutes. Worldwide, one million people end their life annually. 2,000 people every day kill themselves. I find it very sad that the third leading cause of death among teens is suicide. And even more disturbingly, that increasingly children as young as two years old are committing suicide. Very famous and gifted people have done this to themselves. Freud, Cleopatra and her lover Mark Anthony, Hemingway, Van Gogh, Robin Williams, Handel. It can happen to anyone and it's almost always a surprise. I was surprised in my research to find that hanging is the leading method used to end your life. Though people have ended their life in endless, endlessly creative in a variety of ways, including poison guns, swallowing poisonous spiders, injecting peanut butter into your veins, and what is called autocide, that is deliberately crashing your car so that you die, autocide. Unsurprisingly, suicide is the leading cause of death for the mentally ill. So the question is, is suicide the unforgivable sin? A little known fact is that the most favorite spot on the entire planet to end your life is the Golden Gate Bridge. More than 1,200 people have done it there. One person who jumped to their death from it left a note that said this, I'm going to walk to the bridge. If one person smiles at me on the way, I will not jump. But no one smiled at him. Suicide is not a sin. It is a human tragedy that needs our compassion, not our condemnation. Still, many people today, including priests and pastors, teach and believe that it is the unforgivable sin that sends the person to hell. Of course, the Greeks disagreed with that, as did the Romans. They considered suicide something noble, an act of courage. It was not shameful. It was honorable. And thus Cleopatra took her own life, as did her lover Mark Anthony. And the Jews, when they were making their last stand against the Roman legions in 73 AD at Masada, that supposedly impregnable fortress at the Dead Sea that, that Herod had built, they saw over more than two years the Romans used slaves to build a dirt ramp up the, the sheer cliff to the walls. And they knew 
that in the morning they would breach the walls and they committed mass suicide. Just under 1,000 men, women, and children killed themselves. They did it in order to avoid becoming slaves or having their women raped. And for centuries, Judaism has seen that as an honorable choice. But Christian authors right away made suicide an unforgivable sin. First, because Judas, the betrayer of Jesus, took his own life, so it was guilt by association. And then Augustine, the great Christian theologian in the fourth century, condemned it as the unforgivable sin because it violated, he said, the sixth commandment, you shall not kill. And he described suicide as self-murder, self-murder, and therefore an unforgivable sin. Why unforgivable? Because you've killed yourself, there's no chance for you to repent, so you die in your sins, it's unforgivable. That was his rationale. A little known fact of history is that suicide actually was made a crime in Europe in the Middle Ages. The body of a suicide was desecrated, dishonored, defiled. In France, the body would be drugged through the streets to defile it and then dumped in the city dump. And in England, a stake was driven through their heart because this must be the work of the devil. Priests would not do the funeral of a suicide and would not permit a suicide to be buried in a church cemetery because it was the unforgivable sin. In the 15th and 16th century, anyone who attempted suicide and failed was arrested, tortured, and then executed. Which makes no sense at all to kill a person for trying to kill themselves, but that's what happened. <laughs> to even attempt it was a crime. So is suicide, as for century it has been believed, an unforgivable sin that sends a person to hell? No. Unequivocally, no. But I know as soon as I say that, that's disputable and controversial because so many people today believe it is unforgivable. Mark Twain famously said, some people are good in the worst sense. Good in the worst sense. I am not recommending suicide. We must do everything to help people make a different choice than ending their life. But to tell the family of a suicide victim that their loved one has committed the unforgivable sin and is in hell. That is not only cruel, but it's biblically wrong and against the love of God. When my son hung himself, I actually got an email telling me that he was in hell because he had committed the unforgivable sin. Cruel and ignorant. And I dismissed it immediately and never gave it another thought. Most suicides need our compassion, not our condemnation. And I say most because it's important for us to know that not all suicides are the same. You can't lump them into the same basket. Hitler committed suicide. 
to escape the consequences of what he had done. It was not an honorable act. It was a cowardly act. Not all suicides are the same. But the fact is 90% of suicides are by the mentally ill, including those in severe depression. That's beyond the imagination of any of us here who everyone goes through a little depression sometime, but severe depression. When a person commits suicide, the pain is so great that the alternative of death seems inviting. It is an unnatural human act. But the pain is so intense and hopeless that the person wants to stop the pain, whatever the price. They need our compassion, not our condemnation. John had paranoia schizophrenia. It's called a mental illness for a good reason. It's an illness of the brain. It's a disease. There's no cure. And it is progressive. It gets worse and worse. The terror and the fear and the self-condemnation gets worse and worse. It's 24-7. There's not one minute of relief. It is constant. And that's why they don't sleep. And that's why they turn to drugs and alcohol to try to get some relief from this, these voices inside of them. Their mind turns against them and creates hell on earth. They hallucinate. They hear voices and see people that are not real. And these voices and imaginary people condemn them, mock them, say they are worthless and a failure, and urge them to kill themselves. We know that because there are a few people who are able to stabilize themselves. One is a very famous law professor at UCLA who's written a book, a very great book, about what it was like to go through paranoia schizophrenia. She still is medicated in order to function at all. And this is what she talks about, the torment. It's beyond your imagination. They believe the government is spying on them. Actually, that's not so crazy anymore, is it? <laughs> spying on them and using satellites and even people in their own family. And gradually, John was suspicious of even his beloved grandmother and Susie, his mother, and of course me, of spying on him. And that's why he moved to Missouri. But he did not escape the unbelievable terror and fear he was experiencing because he carried it in his diseased brain. Very few people can imagine the torment of mental illness. And so I want to show you a short clip from the movie A Beautiful Mind that was made on the biography of John Nash, who was a very, probably the most brilliant mathematician that America has ever produced. He was a mathematician at MIT, later awarded the Nobel Prize for his calculations that uh, became an economic theory. But along the way, he became severely ill with paranoia schizophrenia. And the clip I, short clip I want to show you is of his wife being terrified by his very aggressive and uh, threatening behavior towards her and 
their baby and she's calling for help and he's trying to stop her. The people you see him, that you see in the movie are not real. They're hallucinations. And the voices you hear, they're just hallucinations. Notice she doesn't see or hear any of this. This gives you some sense of what they go through. Let's see the clip. Alicia! No. Hello, I need Dr. Rosen's office, please. You gotta stop her, John. You leave her out of this. Who are you talking to? It's not her fault. John. She'll compromise us again. No, she won't. You'll go back to the hospital. John! Countless people will die. Alicia, please, put the phone down. I can't let that happen. Yes. Hello. Hi, honey. Dr. Rosen, is he in? I'm sorry, John. No! <laughs> you know what you have to do, Nash. She's too great a risk. Get away! I didn't mean to hurt you. Finish her. She knows too much now. John? John? Oh, Christ, John, please, do what he says. Move, soldier. Now. Uncle John? John, please! Now! That's just a small taste of the terror 24-7. I cannot actually imagine the fear that he lived with for nine years until he took his own life, but I can understand why one night he would hang himself because it seemed to be his only option to silence the voices. I will be candid with you. The most devastating fact about his death was not the hanging, as terrible as that is to imagine. The most devastating thing was when the detective who phoned me that night to tell me they had found, the children had found the body. He told me that even though John in that seven months had decomposed so only a skeleton was within the clothes he still had on, the most devastating thing was he told me that they found a pair of scissors in his back pocket. Even as unstoppable as the voices were and unrelenting as the terror was, even as the voices drove him to end his life, he took scissors to the tree that night just in case he might win one victory over these voices and change his mind. But the voices won again that night and he never used the scissors. Mental illness is a civil war within the mind. That's what the scissors represent. And to the very end, there was a part of John wanting to live. And that breaks my heart. Suicide is an unnatural act for a human being, even for the mentally ill. Mental illness destroyed his personality. At the University of Oregon, he joined a fraternity <laughs> that was where the film Animal House was filmed. Do you remember that movie? 
And they were committed to living it out. And they were the animal house on campus, it turns out, toga parties and all. And guess what? John was elected social chairman. Of, <laughs> and I'm sure there are things that happen I never know, want to know about. He was a Christian. And one of the things I'll talk about later is there were some years where he didn't act like it. Can a Christian lose his salvation? That was a very serious question. I'll be talking about that in a later message. But John, before he became really mentally ill, he was so kind and gentle, and he sent a card to his cousin, Joy, who had just become a Christian at the age of 30 and was baptized. It was a card congratulating her for inviting Jesus into her life. He was a believer who deteriorated mentally. The point of telling you about being social chairman of the animal house is that he was an extrovert, he was fun, he was popular, and he loved life. So they made him social chairman. But his mental illness made him a hermit and suicidal. When I flew back to clean out his apartment after his death, his journals were everywhere. Since before high school, John would write about his thoughts every day. And he was a journal, um, journalism ma major at the University of Oregon. He wanted to be a writer. So he wrote and wrote in his mental illness. And it was reflected in his writing. And I can say, after reading a lot of it, that Psalm 6 was John's psalm. It's become one of my favorite psalms of David. And in it, David writes, I am worn out from groaning. All night long I flood my bed with my tears. That was John. Did God send him to hell for committing suicide? No. Absolutely not. John was the victim of a mental disease, as so many suicides are. And he should no more be blamed for what that disease of the mind made him do than someone with cataracts is to be blamed for sometimes bumping into something they don't see. I want you to know that some of you will think this is a conclusion of convenience that I've come to because of my own son, but it's not true. Long before John became mentally ill, I was preaching at uh, funeral services for suicides and for the mentally ill, and I was continually saying the Bible does not say that this is the unforgivable sin because so many in the audience had been taught it was. The only sin Jesus said is for unforgivable is what he called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in Mark 3. Blasphemy. That word means to discredit, to ridicule. The context of this is that the pious religious scholars from Jerusalem were saying that Jesus was possessed of Satan. He was demonic and his power to do miracles came from Satan. 
They were calling, in other words, the Savior, demonic. That's blasphemous. That's ridiculing the Son of God. The work of the Holy Spirit is to promote Jesus, to convince us that Jesus is who he said he is. He is God come to earth to save us. It is to bring us to faith in Jesus. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, to witness to him. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to reject the Savior, to ridicule the Savior by calling him demonic. You cannot be forgiven if you reject the Savior who is the forgiver. You have now disqualified yourself because you won't receive the forgiveness of the Savior who is the forgiveness. That's the only reason it's unforgivable because you refuse to receive the Savior's forgiveness. The Bible reports the suicides of seven people and not once is suicide called a sin. And there was opportunity because some of them weren't too nice. I am not approving suicide this morning. I'm only setting the record straight that God weeps over suicide, not condemns it as unforgivable. I have accumulated an entire shelf of books on mental illness so that I could try to stand in John's shoes and understand what he went through. And the first thing I can say that I've learned as I've studied mental illness is this. Suicides deserve our compassion, not our judgment and condemnation. For a year after John's suicide, I dreaded the question, how many children do you have? And I would always say two. And then inevitably the question would be, well, where do they live? In Salinas? I'd say, no, Jenny's in Colorado and my son John is in heaven. And then inevitably the question would be, oh, I'm so sorry about that. How did he die? And I never flinched. I would say he, had, he was mentally ill and he hung himself. Most of the time, a great disease, disease, uncomfortableness would come over the other person and they would fidget. It was like I had caught a disease and it would go silent. There was nonverbal communication that something must really be wrong with our family and I must be a bad dad if my son became mentally ill and ended his own life. I was stunned in my reading of many, many books on this to find story after story of people wanting to keep the suicide of someone in their family secret. They would make up stories about how they died to tell their young children or to tell other people, especially a spouse, to tell other people they died in a car accident or something. So they'd make it up. You know why? Because they knew they were going to be blamed for the suicide. You must have been a bad wife. There must have been a woman on the side. Some way or another, the survivor would be blamed. I have never been ashamed of John's suicide. He had a disease. He did not commit an atrocity. He was mentally ill. And it can happen to anyone. There's something even more cruel than people judging the suicide 
And it's what I mentioned. It's blaming the spouse or the family for it. And that's why they would want to hide it. This actually happened to me. One of the emails I got, the author said that I had been a bad dad and Susie a bad mother. That's the only explanation for this happening. Callous, cruel, cold-blooded. I just dismissed it. But I am determined as the pastor of this church that this church not be a place where people are judged but it is a place of forgiveness and understanding where we go to stand in other people's shoes, not shake a finger at them. I am determined about that. And, And I wanna say that goes not only for mental illness, severe depression and all the rest, it goes for alcoholism, drug abuse, adultery, just everything. All our sin. It's a place of forgiveness and understanding, not of condemnation. Secondly, my son's suicide taught me the importance of intentionally making wonderful memories because there's no guarantee of tomorrow. No guarantee. Most of the time, you know, there's time to say goodbye to someone who is dying. Like with my own father, who developed cancer. I had months where we would have talks and I finished all the business that we had to do and telling him I loved him and so on. There's time to say goodbye, to ask forgiveness, to forgive, to mend a relationship, to say I love you so much. Time for unfinished business. But in a suicide or in a car accident, there is no time to do unfinished business. The tomorrow we took for granted does not come. The chance to mend a relationship, to ask for forgiveness, to express how much you love them today is missed and forever gone because tomorrow does not come. What helped me substantially heal were the memories I made with John. I think about them all the time. When he was only two, I would take him on my 10-speed bike down to Lake Merritt in Oakland, and he would toddle after the ducks. And then we'd get back on my bike and go to Swenson's and have peanut butter sandwiches and ice cream. And we did that every Saturday. And then in Denver, I built him a fort on top of 12-foot telephone poles with the coolest swinging rope bridge which freaked out his mother and definitely violated every city court. They would have red tagged it for sure if they'd ever come into my backyard. But it was such a blast for them for years. And we made memories sailing together and almost dying in high winds. Memories. Camping in Disneyland trips. I cling to those memories like a drowning man to a board in a raging sea. I only wish I'd made more memories. Too often, I delayed making memories and said to myself, tomorrow. But there came a day when tomorrow did did not come. Most people 
here today cannot read Latin, and most of you probably have never heard of the Roman poet Horace. But at Oxford on my sabbatical two summers ago, uh, in a course I took, I, I read about Horace, and I was surprised to, um, to understand what his most famous line, that even if you don't know Horace, you probably know this line, carpe diem, carpe diem, most everybody translates that or understand, has been taught that it means seize the day. It doesn't. That's a poor translation. And as I read about this, uh, the best translation by Latin scholars is taste the day. I like that so much better. Taste the day. Carpe diem. This means today will never come again and there's no guarantee of tomorrow. So don't live in the past and don't wait for the future. Be present today. Taste the day. Say more often, I love you. Say to people around you, I love you today. Forgive people today. Ask for forgiveness today. Apologize today. Praise people. Thank people today. Because there's no guarantee of tomorrow. Carpe diem. Taste the day. I like that. Make memories in your marriage and your kids. Spend money making memories. That means not to buy the latest smartphone. <laughs> Getting personal with you. Use the same phone that works for three years and take that money and spend it on making money, uh, making memories with your, uh, <laughs> yeah, make money. <laughs> Getting tired. <laughs> make money and then make more memories. And so, and don't spend so much money on eating out because you're not going to remember those meals 30 years from now, but you will remember camping at Big Sur and you will remember a vacation in Disneyland or down at Yosemite. Taste the day. Invest time and money today in making memories because in the end, the only thing you have is your memories. It's the only thing. So carpe diem, carpe diem. Third, my son's death turned me into a wounded healer. I'm a different person. As a pastor, I've always been compassionate for hurting people. But now I have a depth of compassion I never had before. Much deeper. My wounds and my hurts from his death have given me compassion for street people that I did not have before because my son could be one of them. It's given me compassion for the mentally ill and for families who suffered a suicide. I get calls as far away as Santa Cruz from people who know I have walked in their shoes and want some kind of help to understand what's happening and what to do. I have been uniquely called. I love that phrase. I have been uniquely called to help 
people who are thinking of suicide who are mentally ill and families suffering from it because I've been through it. Uniquely called. And some of you have been through the pain of divorce and grief and you're leading our divorce care groups and our grief share groups. Why? Because you've been uniquely called. You've been there. You can help other people. And you've answered your unique call. And some of you have been called to be part of a, a unique group that is especially generous to giving to retiring the debt on the building you're enjoying. They have been uniquely called to really make a difference in paying off that debt. Every Christian is called by God in the Bible to tithe 10%. Every Christian. But some are uniquely called to be especially generous because of blessings in their life. Maybe with you, it's children's ministry. I don't know what your unique calling is, or Rita with our outreach ministry, or those of you in the trades, I believe you're uniquely called to keep this property in repair and save the church money. Every Christian is uniquely called to do something for God. You have been saved for a purpose. You have not been saved just so you go to heaven someday. Not been saved just so you can get through a hurt that you're going through right now. You have been saved for the purpose of some unique calling to make a difference for him. And I hope you discover your unique calling and get to it. Surely someone here this morning has suicide thoughts. You feel worthless. You may feel your problems are unsolvable. You may feel that you've made a mess that's unsalvageable. You may feel this morning you can never rise from the ashes. But I want to encourage you with tremendous hope from one of my other favorite Psalms, Psalm 56, verse 9. This I know, God is for you. Not once was, not someday will be for you, but right today he is for you and he is on your side and he is standing by your side with whatever you face. So cut the negative thoughts. Cut, cut the horribilizing. God is for you. You need to begin to believe that by faith and begin to act with that. What this means is if God had a calendar on his desk in heaven, your birthday would be circled. If God drove a car in heaven, your name would be on his bumper. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 49 verse 16 says, your name is actually tattooed on his hand. Sue, Glenn, Bill, Josie, your name is tattooed on his hand. That's how much he loves you. I want to show you what I'm really like underneath this pretty shirt. I have two <laughs> tattoos. You see my tattoos? <laughs> I love my wife, Susie, and I love my granddaughter, Tegan. I'm getting another tattoo for Jenny. Would you like to see them? That's really how I look. <laughs> Now this goes on TV, I can't do that. <laughs> but I want you to remember that picture because on God's hand, 
your name is tattooed. Let that give you hope and courage for today. May I pray for you? Help us, Lord, to believe what I have preached. I pray you deliver us from this terrible sin of self-centered living. And help us to find the pleasure and the fulfillment of being uniquely called to something for you. Get off, get out of the bleachers and onto the field. And I pray for people today who are in despair and depression, that they would get the CD or DVD of this and marinate themselves in the truths of this message. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast of Dr. Mike from Compass Church in Salinas. We hope you're encouraged by his practical Bible-based teaching 